The History with Jackson podcast. Hello, welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast, the home of accessible and digestible history. Now, I'm your host, Jackson, and in today's episode, I'm speaking to Ashley Mantle all about his brand new book, Uncrowned, Royal Heirs Who Didn't Take the Throne, from Amberley Publishing. Now, it's a great book, great episode, and know that you are all going to enjoy it. Now, if you enjoy learning about great history, listening to great history, reading about great history, please do consider heading to the History Jackson website, where you can read all the great content that we have on the blog from some fantastic historians and authors now without further ado i'm gonna leave you with ashley so hello and welcome back to the history with jackson podcast today we welcome historian and author ashley mantle to discuss his brand new book with amberly thank you amberly for sending it to me uncrowned royal heirs who didn't take the throat now i've got my copy right here and it is a brilliant book it's probably one of the one of my favourite books that I've read recently, you know, discussing so many different parts of British history, which we should really be discussing a little bit more. Now, how are you, Ashley? I'm oh, very good, thank you. Um, Jackson, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you, mate. And thank you very much for coming on to come and talk about your brand new book. I'm, I'm super excited for this. So the first question I want to ask you, Ashley, and I, I ask this to every single guest who comes on the podcast, you know, what was the inspiration behind writing this book? So... Uncrowned was born from another project I was doing, a series of books called Pocket Monarchs. So these were short biographies of uh, the kings and queens of England and a general audience. So I wrote one on King John, and after writing that, I kind of flitted between projects a bit, and then I started to write Henry the First as my as my next uh, as my next book. When reading that, I got really interested in the story of um, Robert Kurt Hose or Robert II, Duke of Normandy. So he was the elder brother of, of Henry and, and William Rufus. And he was denied for, uh, the throne twice. And I, I found myself like really, I, I think it's because he's he's a bit of an un- underdog. And I think um, we English, we know we like we like the story of an underdog. And something, something just really interested me in his story. So I wanted to write something on him. So I... Uh, Obviously, he didn't fit the idea of the this Pokemonic series of books. So I decided to add in some extra characters who also didn't become kings. I had the idea of, say, Edward V. And I started researching into the idea. And I found that, you know, there was many characters in our history from, from the normal conquest onwards. People who were destined to be king and queen, but never were. So I, I thought I could turn this into, you know, into a full-size book. So I approached Amberley and... Um, the rest, as they say, is uh, history. I love how you've taken something that you're interested in. It's a tale as old as time for historians. You've taken something you're interested in and turned it into a book or uh, a project that you're really passionate about and you really want to bring to people. And I absolutely love that you've been able to do that with this book. Obviously, your book, you, you cover so many different uncrowned, as you call them. And I, I want to cover every single one of them. I know... We can't though, because it's not fair on everyone else. It's not fair on you. You need, you need, you need to promote different parts of your book. So I've chosen some of the uncrowned that I find incredibly interesting. I'd love to discuss in a little bit more detail. Now, one of them is is someone who's probably overshadowed by events that happen after, and it's it's William Aisling. Now, who 
was William Aitling and how was he the heir to the English throne? So w- William Aitling was the only, well, the eldest son and only legitimate son of King Henry I of England. He was vitally important to Henry because Henry wasn't destined to, originally destined to be be king. He was the youngest of William the Conqueror's uh, four sons, three of which survived. The eldest of these was uh, Robert Curthose, who would become Duke of Normandy. The second son was was named Richard. He died tragically young in the in the New Forest, which uh, happened a few times with uh, William's uh, William's children or descendants. The third was William Rufus, who became King William II, and then obviously we had Henry. So when William the Conqueror died in 1087, he made Robert um, Duke of Normandy as he had already been recognised, but Robert had rebelled twice against him before and he was in complete disfavour with with William so William instead of giving him England as well which we don't really know um, what William's um, ideas were for Norm- uh, for England for you know how he was going to uh, what he was going to do when he died but it, he probably would have given it to Robert that the Norman Dukes tended to give any any extra land that they they any acquisitions extra land they acquired they used to pass on hold to the to, to the heir. Instead he made William Rufus uh king. He he gave the, the kingdom him. Um and he could do this because there was a rule then in in um in England and Normandy which said that acquisitions the, the, the main patrimony, so Normandy would go to the eldest son, but any acquisitions could be given to to a younger son. So William took advantage of that and obviously Robert was in exile at the time so he gave him gave William the the kingdom so Henry was given 5,000 silver marks by his father which is you know a sizable amount but he was uh, and some of his mother's lands in England so Henry had to kind of forge a path for himself he luckily he could take advantage of um the uh relations between his two two elder brothers which uh, you know soon um soon came to blows so as soon as William Rufus had been made king. There were plans to buy some of the Norman nobility, including Bishop Odo of Bayer, um, William the Conqueror's half brother, to give Robert the throne. So, so um, but Robert was—he uh, wasn't really cut out to be ever to be a duke. He was a, a big spendthrift. He was lazy and irresolute. And by the time um, he was to send soldiers over to um, help win the throne for him, because all the all the uh, Normans were going to rebel against William Rufus. He uh, he'd run out of money, so he was forced to sell lands to Henry. He, he sold him the Catentin and the, the the western part of Normandy, which is again a, a fairly you know large size um, part of land uh, for three thousand silver marks to send the soldiers over. So Henry had already acquired some lands, um, but he lost uh, some of this or a lot of this. Um, Later on, when his two brothers uh, basically came to peace, um, and they agreed to win back any lands that had been lost that their father had owned that had been lost when um, since Robert had taken power, so they went against Henry, and he st- stood against them on Mont Saint Michel, um, and he ended up going in for a few years into exile. But he he returned, and he he ended up um, being accepted into Domfront in Normandy. Um, and the people there chose him to to, to rule over them. So uh, William Rufus and obviously Robert ended up going to uh, to war a lot, 
and Henry fought for, for Rufus and Robert at different times. And then eventually uh, Robert went off to fight in the First Crusade. So he mortgaged Normandy to William Rufus um, for the sum of uh, about 10,000 silver marks, which is double what Henry had acquired. And then while he was away, he, he, he went away and he, he obviously was successful. They, they won back Jerusalem. Um, on his return in, the, in August 1100, William Rufus was out hunting in the, the New Forest um, when he was hit by a crossbow bolt by his companion, Walter Tyrrell. Um, Henry was fortuitously, or some might say, or, you know, by design, was present in the New Forest at this time. And he um, got on his horse, he made a mad dash to Winchester, which was at the time the, uh, where the Royal Treasury was kept. So he, he got there and demanded the, the money from the Treasury. And, and um, he was challenged in the name of his brother. But in the end, everyone gave way and he was elected king. So at the same time, uh, Robert returned home, obviously to find that he'd been beaten to the beaten to the kingdom once again. But Henry knew that he would certainly that he would find some support and he would try and retake, you know, try and take the throne. So Henry needed to get his English subjects and as many people as he could on, on his side. So one way he did that was to marry Matilda of Scotland. So Matilda of Scotland was a descendant of the House of Wessex. So she was the she was the granddaughter of Edmund Ironside, King Edmund Ironside. Um, and his son was Ed, uh, Edward the Exile. So Edward the Exile was the father of Edgar Efferling and uh, and Margaret, who became Saint Margaret, and another daughter, Christina. So Saint, as you became Saint Margaret, married King Malcolm III of Scotland, and their daughter was was Matilda. Uh, one of the daughters was Matilda. So she carried in her this the blood of the kings of Wessex. So there was also this kind of this thing known as the green tree prophecy at the time. So this was from Edward the Confessor. So on when he, Edward was on his deathbed, he, he, he foresaw the Norman conquest when two monks he'd known in his youth visited him and, and told him of, of what was to happen. And when he asked, uh, you know, is there any way um, that it can be prevented? They, uh, they said no, but they said... Um, they gave like, this cryptic phrase that became known as the Green Tree Prophecy, saying um, it's quite confusing to talk about um, without without being able to read it out. But um, essentially saying that the it was become to, come to be understood that it was saying that the, the House of Normandy and the House of Wessex would meet, as it were, come entwined, um, and then and um, peace would return to England. So Henry might have been uh, might have known about the the green tree prophecy and it might have you know been on his mind at the time so anyway robert returns to england uh sorry returns to normandy and he marries on his way um on his on his return to uh sybil of conversano um obviously with the idea of getting himself an heir because he's still heirless at this time and uh obviously henry's also now married so this green tree prophecy you know it's it shows in a really important moment in english and, and particularly monarchical history as well there the, the coming together of the House of Wessex and the Norman uh, conquest and that that royal fam that new royal family and that coming together is obviously William through Henry's marriage to Matilda of Scotland. William, what's William's early life like as as this heir to the English throne, this important position, this 
final piece of the puzzle in this green tree uh, prophecy. So Robert Curthose, um actually has an heir first. He he has has a son called um, William Clito, and Clito is like the Norman kind of equivalent of of, of an Etheling of, of of an heir. So obviously this, this is quite alarming for Henry because if if he dies without obviously without an heir, um, he will obviously Robert or his son may end up taking over the kingdom, and obviously all Henry's hard work's gone for nothing. Um, so Matilda does fall pregnant, and in 1102 she gives birth to a, a daughter, which is the uh, name Matilda, the future Empress Matilda. Obviously Henry was probably trapped with a daughter, but it was a son that he really needed because female um, inheritance wasn't known at this time. So, so it, it was a male, a male heir that obviously he really had his, his sights set on. So in 1103 he did finally have this this male heir. So this is William Etheling. So he was born in about July or August of 1103, so the year after Matilda. And obviously as a male, he was Henry's heir. So in his early life, we know that he was first of all in the, in the, in the royal nursery. But we do know he was ended up being placed under the care of um, Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, for a bit. And it's until about 1109 when the Archbishop died. And he was then placed under the tutelage of Ophir, who was the half-brother of Richard, Earl of Chester. In 1106, um, Henry I invaded Normandy and defeated his brother Robert Cuthose at the Battle of Tinchebray. So Henry then becomes Duke of Normandy, although he doesn't um, use the title. And this kind of brings him into conflict with King Louis VI of France and his, and his neighbours on the continent. England pretty much remains at peace for, for Henry's reign, but Normandy doesn't. So uh, Louis VI regards Henry as his vassal, as um, as Duke of Normandy, but, and he wants Henry to um, perform homage for the duchy. But Henry, as a fellow king himself, obviously doesn't want, doesn't want to be seen to do this, so he refuses to, uh, to perform the homage. So this obviously is a dangerous path for him to take because William Clito, uh, Robert's son William Clito, obviously is, is still around. He was uh, after Robert was captured, he was placed um, in captivity in, in in England for the rest of his life. But Henry took um, pity on William and and allowed him to stay with his his um, guardian, um, which obviously would prove to be quite a, quite a big mistake as heir. One of the ways in which uh, William learned the, the ropes of, of government um, was he acted as a vice regent with her, um, alongside his mother, Queen Matilda, um, when Henry was off, off at war in, in Normandy. As I say, the, uh, uh, Henry wouldn't, reckon, wouldn't perform homage to Louis um, and war broke out in, in a, a few times in 1111 and, and, and later. Um, so Louis formed a coalition with some of the Duchess' neighbours. So one of these was... Count Fulk of Anjou, who was the Angevins were a big enemy of the Normans, and also the Counts of Flanders as well. In the coalition of 11, 11, 11 12, uh, one of the ways Henry defeated um, some of his opponents was by using William um, as a, a political bargaining tool, really. So he was able to um, betroth him to the daughter, Matilda of Maine, of, of Fulk Count of Anjou. So that meant, meant that William, uh, that Count Fulk, um, obviously dropped out of the war. The, the Count of a lot of the Count of Flanders actually during this war were killed, um, and Louis in the end had to had to call off the coalition. But then he started to throw his support behind William Clito, uh, say Robert Curthose's, um son. 
and he promised to help him win Normandy, his father's uh, his father's lands in Normandy. So in eleven fifteen, William Etheling was recognised as heir to Normandy in response to this. Henry then came up with the idea of instead of performing this homage himself, he would possibly give give William the duchy um, and offer Louis some money basically to to recognise him as as Duke of, as Duke of Normandy. Um, Louis apparently was. You know, the idea of the money was quite intriguing to him, but he was convinced by the, the Count of Nevers to, to say no and carry on supporting William Clito. So in um, March 1116, uh, William was also recognised as heir to England in at Salisbury. And when war was renewed in 1118, again, Falk, joins, Falk joined this war again. The uh, the betrothal was, was uh, over by now. And one way, again, that Henry used was William as a... As a uh, political bargaining tool. So he, so he, he once again offered um, William's hand to Matilda, uh, to Matilda, the daughter of Falk, um, which was agreed. And in May 1119, he travelled to Normandy, and the two were married at uh, Lisieux in, in June. So just over a month later, Henry and Louis met in battle um, at Bremule. Um This is this is on the 20th of August 1119. We don't fully know, but William William was probably at the battle. We don't know if he actually participated. We don't really know, but um, it's possible that he was in the the rear guard of the army along with some of Henry's illegitimate sons who were there. And he certainly was present after. So it was a, a devastating defeat for Louis, and Louis fled, and and Henry took the field. After this, there was lots of negotiations, and Louis eventually recognised. William as heir to Normandy. So Henry didn't have to perform the homage. William could perform the homage. But Louis said that um, so he wasn't seen to like renege on his promise to William Clito. Um, he had William Effling perform homage to his own heir, which was uh, Philip instead. That was, a, that was a great answer that really, really shows just how important with William Effling was to, to his father, Henry I. But yeah. also... The, the political dynamics of the medieval world of where heirs and children were used as political bargaining tools. And and that started to give William that, that political standing that started to mark him out as a important political figure in medieval Europe. And, and also a future king, someone who might be a very incred- incredibly powerful and important king in the future when he succeeds his father. But all of that comes undone in 1120 in a disastrous way in something that's now known as the white ship disaster so could you let us know what happens in this disaster and and what's the effect of this event on england yep yeah, so um after obviously securing the the victory bramiel and, and after having um louis recognize um, Henry's right to the duchy through through William and William being made um, recognised as heir. Um, Henry decides to return back to to England in 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 triumph. So they um, assemble a fleet at Barfleur that's going to transport Henry, his his sons, and 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 all his attendants and that to back over to back over to England, which he's not seen for quite a few years, or probably about four years. Um, so on twenty fifth November. Um, as Henry is overseeing preparations, he's approached by a captain called Thomas. So he claims to be the son of the the man who um, conveyed William across the English Channel 
uh, during the in the September 1066 for for the Norman Conquest, and he tells Henry that he's got this like sleek vessel called the the, the white ship or the, the Blanche Neff as uh, in in, uh, in French, and he offers uh, um, Henry to take him obviously across the sea to be the one to take him across. So Henry's already fitted out a ship and he, he's already prepared. So he decides that he'll pass on the offer, but he says he will let um, Thomas have the honour of conveying his heir and son, William Effeling, some of his other children, illegitimate children, and also um, many of the Norman kind of nobility in the ship. So William is like his father, is in like, like a jubilant mood, and the, the sailors ask him if um, they can have any, any drink. Um, so he gives them all barrels of, of wine, and the, the, the rowers and everyone, the crew are drinking it. So, say the obviously the, the ability in Henry and um, William himself, um, and soon they all, you know, drunk. And you have this one instance that this one kind of one of those big what if moments at this point where. Um, Stephen of Blas, who's um, Count of Mortain, and, and later is um, King Stephen, um, as we'll discuss soon. So he is going to come on board, but apparently he, he suffers from like a bout of one chronicles is like a bout of diarrhea, and he can, and obviously he doesn't come on. So um, obviously, had he come on board the ship, the the actual future of England might have been very different, which is always quite interesting to to think about. So anyway, so. Henry um, sets off in his ship, uh, and uh, the crew of the white ship prepare, and they, they set off on the on the night. As I said, obviously they're all quite drunk now. Tom and the passengers start saying to to challenge Thomas to see if he can overtake the the, the king's ship. Um, so in their kind of his like drunken hubris, he's like um, he agrees and gets the rowers to you know do their thing, and the, the ship sets off. And uh, but the drunken helmsman actually steers the ship obviously off kilter and it, it collides with a, a, a rock just off the coast of Barfleur. It obviously breaks from the planks and water obviously starts entering the ship. Now at this time obviously most people couldn't swim so obviously this was catastrophic um, and not only obviously was the heir of England and Normandy on board but also lots of the heirs of the, the, the you know the great houses of, of, of Normandy and England. So water starts pouring on and uh, William is Place into a ship, uh, like a, a ship's boat, and he and he gets out and he, and he's going along with his tutor over here. But he hears the cries of his um, illegitimate uh, sister, uh, the Countess of Perch, and she um, and she's obviously screaming for help. So he commands the ship to be the the boat to be turned around, and he and he heads back in. Obviously, by this time the ship's uh, the uh, the white ship is obviously going underwater, and people are being swept off and and everything off the ship. People are all in the water, and they all clutch at the at the the prince's ship, and it gets overturned. So the prince, uh, sorry, the prince, so um, so William falls into the into obviously the cold waters, and he drowns. And, and one one of the chronicles tells us that Ophir, his tutor, um, took him into his arms, and they sank into into the deep with, uh, with each other. Um, and so William Effing was only about you know he was seventeen at this time, so uh, you know obviously a young man. So only what the, the ship sank, and only one person survived, and that was a butcher from uh, Rouen called Berold, who, who the only person who survived to tell the tale. So Henry obviously reached back home, and he didn't know, and um, eventually, no one wanted to be the person to tell him that his only son was dead. Uh, Henry made what is really a big mistake in the fact that 
you only ever had two legitimate children. So obviously Matilda and, and, and William. Um, female rule obviously not being known at this time. It was a dangerous game to play. So one of the chroniclers, I think it might be uh, William Malmesbury, it tells us that Matilda was like content with having the two children and, and that was it. But obviously that's probably not right. You know, more likely she probably had problems um, uh, uh, getting pregnant again. Um, and Henry seems to be content with his mistresses. But obviously this now means that his only son is dead. Um, and when um, they ended up sending in a young boy who told Henry, obviously, what happened. And Henry apparently was said to like fall to the floor and he had to be led off in his grief. And, you know, you give that really kind of powerful bit of history there where you can really sense, you know, what this loss meant to him. Henry's queen, Matilda, had died by now as well. She died in 1118. So his only legitimate... Child, only Elizabeth child he had was his daughter Matilda, but um, female said female uh, succession was unknown. But also to make matters worse, she was actually in Germany where she'd married Emperor Heinrich V, and she'd been sent over at a young age in in eleven ten. So there was obviously now this real possibility that um, either Robert, who was still alive, languishing in you know in, in captivity, but still alive. Or William Clitter, who was still obviously still a, a force on the continent, that they may become king and, and, and duke, and all Henry's hard work again would 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 come to nothing. All this. So his first thought was obviously have another heir. So he married again a younger a younger bride called um, Adeliza Levan. But Adeliza never actually became pregnant. So, I mean, Henry obviously was a lot older; he's in his fifties at this point, and um, and and she, she never got pregnant that we know of, anyway. So obviously at this point then William Clitter comes back out the you know and uh, he starts getting support again with the with, with the, the French king. So then in eleven twenty five Henry has delivered some not really for him fortuitous news because Heinrich V, um Matilda's husband, dies, possibly of cancer. Um and obviously she, she never had uh, any children with him either. So so now Henry can obviously start uh, making plans. So he calls her back over to England and um, in his Christmas court of uh, 1126, he takes the unusual step of having the barons recognise her as heir to England and uh, and Normandy. So obviously this is unknown at the time, but they, they all accept. And one of the people who who, uh, who was there is uh, Stephen of Blas, who I mentioned before, the Count of Mortain. And so he's Matilda's cousin. So he's the daughter. Uh, he's the son of a daughter of William the Conqueror. It really, it really has a, a wide-ranging implication, really. You can see that that effect of Stephen not getting on that ship and, and William dying, having that effect of leading England almost headfirst into the anarchy, even causing massive amount of uh, succession disputes, and and political disputes between the different nobility of noble families and and heirs in England at that time, and it's it's a very interesting case study of what happens when when that heir passes away and creates a succession issue that that plunges England into perhaps it's one of its darkest moments and, and darkest moments yeah. of civil civil war. Now I want to I want to swap now to a, a slightly more modern example of an uncrowned uh, heir to the throne. And that yep. is someone who I found absolutely fascinating 
and I had never heard of before, Sophia Electris of Hanover. Now, the way you've spoke about her in your book, you've, you've brought her to life as this incredibly important figure in British, and I'm making a distinction here, British monarchical history. Yeah. You know, who was Sophia Electris of Hanover and, and why was she in line for the throne? Because Hanover, as you know, some listeners might be able, well, Hanover's in Germany and you know, she's in line for the British throne here. Right, so uh, this is quite uh, it's quite a complex um, story of Sophia, really. But um, uh, King James I uh, uh, of England and six of Scotland um, succeeded to the throne in, in 1603. So he had three children. So he had Henry Frederick, who's Prince of Wales, who features in the book. He had Elizabeth, his daughter Elizabeth, and then he had the future Charles I as well. So... Henry Frederick obviously was raised to be to be um, a future king, um, but he died in sixteen twelve. But Elizabeth was married off, so um, she was married to the Protestant Frederick V, who's Elector of Palatine. So the year after Henry died, um, Elizabeth and uh, Frederick married, um, and then they went over to uh, to Germany, obviously to where he um, where he had his power in Palatine. So they set up house in Heidelberg, which is the capital of the Palatinate. But in 1619, Frederick was offered the crown of Bohemia by the Protestant population who had deposed their Catholic king, Ferdinand of Styria. Frederick, against the advice of, of uh, James I, agreed and, and, and was made king. And Elizabeth obviously was then queen of Bohemia. But um, Ferdinand of Styria, who was the, uh, the king of Bohemia um, and who had been obviously deposed, he... Um, became uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, so he wanted to win back, wanted to win back uh, Bohemia, which resulted in the Battle of the White Mountain in November 1620. So after this, um, Frederick, um, Elizabeth, and all their children obviously fled, and they ended up going into the the Hague in, in Holland. So the Palatinate was forfeited as well, and they had to rely on the charity of the the House of Orange. So. This was the birth of kind of the um, period in history known as the the, the thirty years the thirty years war. And uh, while Hem- while um, Frederick was off fighting, Elizabeth uh, remained at the Hague, um, and it was there that she, uh, she gave birth to Sophia, who was the couple's twelfth uh, child and also their youngest daughter. And she was born on the fourteenth of October, uh, sixteen thirty. So Sophia is interesting in that she she actually written a memoir of the first kind of. 50, uh, uh, 50 or so years of her life. So we can really get to know her, you know, in a way that we can't really get to know a lot of other historical figures in general, but certainly other characters that are, that were in the in the book. And, um, I mean, they even, the fact that she was 12 child, they even um, had trouble uh, coming up with a name for her and actually had to pick lots, apparently, and Sophia was the, the winning name. So... She was sent off to Leiden. She was brought up um, along with her elder, uh, her elder sisters, with her, and eventually these all moved off, and, and she ended up going back to to the Hague with her mother. So she remained in Hague for, for um, a, lo- a large amount of time then. But in 1648, the treat, um, the Thirty Years' War came to a close in, in what was known as the Treaty of Westphalia, and her elder brother Charles Louis um was restored to the lower palatinate her father obviously was was long dead by now so in the 16 uh in about 1650 she moved over to to heidelberg and it was here that she caught the eye 
um, of George William, who was Duke of Hanover. George William was from the house of known as Brunswick Lundberg, um, and he was a bit like an inveterate bachelor. Um, and he was he he was in need of money, and his um, his, uh, his his subjects promised that if he uh, married, they would they would basically give him, him more money. So he set his sights on Sophia, who he'd heard about from his younger brother, Ernest Augustus. Um, and he, he went over to Wooda, as it were, and they agreed, he, they agreed to marry. But when he actually then, he went to, he, he used to go to um, Venice and that, and he, you know, he was like a bit of a, a bachelor and a bit of a womanizer and everything. Um, and when he got, when he went, he got ended up with cold feet, and he decided that he didn't want to marry; he wanted to remain, um, uh, remain single. Um, so he come up with this plot that he would um, marry, not go against his word, marry Sophia, uh, Sof- marry his Sophia to his youngest brother Ernest Augustus. She agreed, and and they ended up um, marrying in in 1658. And after that, we have this kind of quite comical series of events where George ends up realising his mistakes and he's fallen in love with Sophia and um, you know uh, Ernest thinks that they're having an affair and, and all these different things it's quite interesting, it reads quite like a, like an old romance really, but to get to the, the event that uh, brought Sophia closer to the throne was the Glorious Revolution of um, 1688, so this had seen the Catholic King, James II who was the youngest son of Charles I, um, deposed and replaced by his daughter, the Protestant Mary, and her husband, William of Orange, who became uh, Mary II and William III. This ended up in the the, uh, the Bill of Rights, which was enacted in 1689, um, and which it actually delineated the order of succession. So James, obviously, James II obviously was barred from the throne. His son, James Francis Edward Stuart, who had been born in 1688, was also uh, Bard, because he he was a, a Catholic, and the the succession was placed, I say, in in um, in William and Mary. After that, it was um, any children of William and Mary would then succeed if they had no children. Um, her youngest uh, Mary's younger sister Anne would would succeed, um, and again, don't devolve on any any heirs. So, at this point, there's still no real chance of Sophia becoming becoming queen, really. Obviously, events happen, so Mary predeceased William, but uh, William has no no children from by Mary, or and he doesn't remarry and, and have any others. Um, Mary's sister Anne, who's the, becomes obviously um, the future uh, Queen Anne, she uh, she has lots of kind of lots of pregnancies that end up with with, with without the um, with the child uh, dying at, um, at birth, but she has one uh, child that survives which is um william duke of gloucester then in 1701 um we had the act of settlement um and in this sophia was recognized as third in line to the throne as i say queen mary died childless um in about 1694 uh, and son william duke of gloucester um died in 1700 um and this made sophia the next uh protestant candidate for the throne so they passed over i think about 52, I think it is, individuals who were excluded due to their uh, Catholicism. Um, obviously, Sophia had a lot of elder brothers and sisters, but these are either turned Catholic or 
the protest or if they're a protestant they they'd predeceased her so they they weren't uh, eligible for the throne so william dies in 1702 and and succeeds so this makes sophia at this point uh, heir presumptive to the throne but sophia was obviously now about 71 um, and Anne was about 37, so her chances of succeeding, obviously, were quite remote. But Sophia, obviously, with, um, had married Ernest, and she had several children, and the, the eldest was um, the future George I. Sophia spent most of her days in the palace of uh, Herrenhausen, um, walking its, field, uh, its gardens and, talk, and having philosophical discussions. So, in 1714, when Queen Anne, who, as I said, had no children, fell ill, there were calls for a members a member of the Hanoverian dynasty to come to England, but Anne was wouldn't allow this, um, and she wrote like an enraged letter to Sophia. Um, and the next day, Sophia fell fell ill, and as she's walking in the gardens uh, with one of her ladies in waiting and um, Princess Caroline uh, of Anne's back, um, it started to rain, and she and she dashed for cover. Um, but as she as she ran, she collapsed and, and died, and literally less than two months after that. Um, Queen Anne passed, obviously had no no children of her own, and it was uh, Sophia's elder son, George Louis, elect of Hanover, who became King George III, and then we had the Austrian, obviously, the Hanoverian dynasty. So Sophia lived just two months longer. She would have become our first and only Queen Sophia. It's, it's a remarkable story, you know, from being 53rd in line for the throne to to becoming the heir just for a short amount of time, but from being 53rd in line to the air is just remarkable. Uh, and, and you've really brought out her importance, not only to the Protestants at that point in making sure that that Protestant line continues, but also her importance to the monarchy today, of which they're all descended from her. Now, what are the rules of succession today because the rules of succession today have changed slightly from some of the some of the rules that we've had previously so you've mentioned you know ideas of the successor being chosen by the outgoing king or the, the nearly dead king or queen the ideas of nobility electing through bodies such as the witten primogeniture so what are the the rules today well today the throne is um primogenic i say it was um until relatively recently, until the, um, the passing of the Succession Act of 2013, this was male preference primogeniture. So it was always the eldest son was heir, was heir apparent, and he took precedence over his younger brothers, and they all took precedence over, obviously, over the, the, the females. Obviously, female succession was, by this point, entirely possible. But there was also, from the uh, the Act of Settlement and, and, and the... Uh, um, there was also rules that the um, kind of the heir had to had to follow. So they couldn't be Catholic because they had to be in communion with the Church of England, um, and they also couldn't marry a uh, be married to a Roman Catholic. Um, they also had to be descended from Electress Sophia. Um, so in the I say in, the, in about twenty eleven they started to relook at the rules because this idea obviously of the the male taking preference over the females not something really that we can accept in today's in today's society um so this was actually an act was passed in, say in 2013 um and now it is the eldest child of the monarch who is um a heir apparent regardless of the gender we won't really see this come into play 
yet because um, obviously William's heir is, is Prince George and he is obviously male. Um, but we can see it in the um, succession of the, 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 the uh, two youngest. Um, so Charlotte um, takes preference over, over Louis. So he won't, if somehow obviously ended up that George you know, didn't become king, he wouldn't... Uh, Louis wouldn't take precedence over over um, over Charlotte. So they've also done away with this idea of the marrying the Roman Catholic. So that's no longer uh, true. But you still have to be in communion with the the Church of England. So obviously, they still it's still barred to a to a Catholic at the moment. It's it's really nice to see that the idea of continual evolution through. Uh, through monarchical history about who can succeed the throne, who who can't succeed the throne, but also that evolution being more positive than it perhaps was in the 1600s and less discriminatory than it was, say, in the 1600s. Now, Ashley, your, your book is awesome. You've, you've really detailed the importance of a couple of really fascinating uncrowned heirs. Now, I want to ask you, you know, final fun questions we do for all the guests here on the History Jackson podcast. Who is your favourite, or who was your favourite on ground to write about? Well, I would say my favourite character would have been Robert Kurt Hose because he was the the genesis of of the book and just someone who really fascinates me. I just think the idea that um, you know he lost the throne really through kind of in, incompetence in in a sense. He he was uh, you know quite a bit of a of a tragic figure when he ended up um, spending the rest of his days imprisoned and, you know, um, his son obviously ended up dying. And um, But there's moments of kind of greatness in his story. You know, you've got his, what he did in, in Jerusalem uh, in the First Crusade, although there is evidence that he still was a bit lazy and perhaps in it, 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 it parts. Um, so, yeah, so his was probably, for me, the most fascinating. I just loved that period of history. I loved the Norman period. Um, and I'll say just that idea of, I think it was that, you know, the um, uh, the fact that we always love, uh, you know, the underdog, I think helps there. Um, but just to kind of put it into two, I really enjoyed Sophia's as well, because she was a figure that I didn't know a lot about. It was really important to our, to our history. Um, but also I just loved her memoirs. I just thought it was, it was so nice to, when I wrote that, to have that to hand rather than, you know, little bits from Chronicles and, you know, um, governmental records and that kind of thing, to actually have the person's voice there in front of you. Um, and there was just that kind of, I say, there was all the kind of bits where it reads a bit like a romance and stuff. It's just, it's just quite interesting. Um, so I definitely, I really, really enjoyed writing about Sophia. I really like that distinction, you know, that, that, that personal preference of who your favourite person was. But also, I think the Sophia one there, you're getting into more of the mechanics of writing and, and the ability to actually be able to write a bloody good chapter. And sometimes <laughs> it does rely on primary sources. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, our listeners are going to want to go away and grab a copy of your book and interact with you online. So where can they find uncrowned royal heirs who didn't take the throne? And where can they find you, Ashley? So, um, Uncrowned is available on Amazon. It's available from Amberley's own website. 
Um, and you can also find it, um, I say, in in some stores around the country. So Waterstones and um, other perhaps other historical um, attractions like um, Ludlow Castle. But uh, to if anyone wants to speak to me, I say I've got a Twitter, which my handle is at AshMantleAuthor. Um, and I'm also on Facebook. I have a page on Facebook as well. So if anyone wants to ask me any questions or anything, or they're free to to ask me there. Fantastic. And I'll make sure a, a link for your book and your social medias is in the description below so people can go away and grab a copy and also interact with you. So thank you very much for coming on, Ashley. I really appreciate you you giving up your time to come and talk to us about Uncrowned. No, thank you, Jackson. Thank you very much for listening to this newest episode of the History with Jackson podcast. Now, this episode of Ashley was absolutely fantastic to learn about two of these uncrowned heirs of the English and the British throne. It's something that's really fascinating. It's an area of history we genuinely do not touch upon as much as we should. Now, if we enjoyed this episode or any of the content that we create here at History Jackson, please do consider heading to the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below to support History Jackson and to continue to do what we do here or head to History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts to support us as well. Thank you very much for listening. We've got a load of content scheduled for 2024 and I hope you are ready for it.